0: GM. I'm Dan Roberts. I'm Stacy Elliott. And this is GM GM from Decrypt. All right, we're back. Stacy, GM, and we've got Arthur Hayes. Yes. GM, or should I
2: say good night? Because we're talking to Arthur (laughs) while it is eight a.m. in Singapore, but eight p.m. for us here on the East Coast in the U.S. So. You know, it, we're making it work. Crypto is global.
0: Totally, he's worth it. Um, gosh, I mean, I I first wrote about Bitcoin in 2011. I feel like I've known about Arthur Hayes since almost that long. I don't know 2013. I mean, he he has just been like a, a crypto bad boy for as long as I can remember, and I've always wanted to interview him. So this is a yeah. Gap.
2: It's funny because, you know, it's, it's not, I guess, that long, but in terms of like crypto years, yeah, Arthur's been around for a long time. Um, he's been around and sharing a lot of ideas through essays for a long time. And so that makes it even more fun to talk to him, right? Because, you know, we've been reading hundreds of his words every time he drops a new essay.
0: Yeah, it's uh, there's going to be so much to talk about with him. Um, I can't imagine we have many listeners who don't know who he is, but the founder of BitMEX, You know, got in trouble with uh, with the law. Uh, I think to this day he still has like an ankle monitor on. Um, He was just on the cover of New York Magazine recently, by the way. Um, You know, lying on a couch with the ankle monitor and with a stuffed octopus. It was a great profile. Uh, And I keep thinking too of of a piece that ran in the Economist like two years ago, and it said the most powerful people in crypto, and it had Arthur Cz. Brian Armstrong and SBF riding in a car together, which two years later, a lot has changed.
2: Usually things like that don't age so quickly, like age like milk quite so quickly. And I'm sorry, I'm not trying to like put bad juju on Brian Armstrong (laughs) or anything. (laughs) <laughs> but, you know, it, it's just, it's fascinating how quickly things move in crypto. And, you know, I think as you and I both know, like Arthur basically sees that as like a feature not a bug for the whole system.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He's also one of the few. Yeah. I can't rave enough about his writing. Um, I love his essays on his Medium blog and his Twitter. But um, it's also the case that there aren't that many people who are that bullish without also being like annoying you know like i know it sounds silly but there you know <laughs> most of the people who are that loud about their belief in crypto and you know the whole like bitcoin fixes this or you know bitcoin is the future you know get out of the mainstream system or find a way out safe haven assets all that stuff they come off more as like the michael Saylor types or the orange pilled guy who shrieked on stage at bitcoin miami famously who has a podcast you know mm, yes. um, he was like you know, fuck Elon, we're not selling. But I feel like Arthur is in that league, but the smart, one of the smartest voices in the room who's like measured and just makes sense. And he's funny.
2: Yeah, I mean, for such a loud industry with so many bombastic personalities, like it it says a lot that he's got staying power and he's done it mostly by being pretty quiet. I don't want to act like he doesn't send off the occasional fiery tweet or drop some you know kind of spicy language in some of his essays but like compared to everyone else he's he's really uh, pretty even quiet you know yes. not not it's as screamy
0: as his uh his colleagues <laughs> yeah i do love the tweet where he's um biting off like sam bankman freed's head which is a great meme um well let's just bring him on let's do it Okay, Arthur Hayes, GM, thanks for joining us. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Awesome to get you on. Uh, Let's just start this way. You are a true OG in this space. It's been years and years that you have watched all this stuff play out. So right now, as we talk, uh, April 2023, how do you feel about the crypto space? Are you more bullish than you've ever been? Are you frustrated by what you see like regulation-wise? What's your uh, 40-foot
1: view? So I think as I published in my recent essay, Kaiseki, and I think the one before that, I forgot the name, I am extremely bullish about the prospects of crypto. The unfortunate fact is that that bullishness is predicated on essentially a disintegration of the you know, global financial system that we sort of had since the 1970s after Bretton Woods was ended, um, when the dollar came off of gold. However, you know, from a crypto perspective, This is our time to shine. If we can't demonstrate value to people of an alternate financial system that isn't plagued by, is my bank going to be taken over by the government or not? Are my deposits safe or not? Is my central bank going to print money to save my deposit or not? And the questions we ask ourselves is, okay, well, is SHA 256 going to you know withstand quantum computing or you know, is the Bitcoin network paying enough for security so that miners can you know continue to validate blocks? These are the sorts of questions that we're asking ourselves, which are you know a different sort of questions. It doesn't necessarily mean that Bitcoin is going to be around forever, but I think it's a welcome change from the political banking issues that we deal with on a day-to-day basis with this system that you know. Did well for, you know, when it was the new thing, you know, a few hundred years ago, but now we have computers and cryptography and it's time to, you know, have a different system out there.
0: When you reference the banking system, and obviously most recently we saw what happened with SVB and Signature and all that stuff. But if we rewind a couple more years, it seems like the pandemic was just a huge accelerant for crypto kind of going mainstream. And we had all the institutions rush in. Did you kind of, well, I know you watched it closely, but do you feel like we wouldn't be where we are necessarily in the, in the, in the industry if we didn't have what happened with, uh, with COVID?
1: I think that COVID was unfortunate and it accelerated a lot of trends, but there would have been something to get us to that point anyway, right? So the reaction of let's shut down the world economy because some people are dying, that was only possible because we have this, you know, the internet, Zoom, WeChat, all these sort of these services, right? So, this was something that was going to always happen. You know, <clears throat> some people are, were saying that you know, at, by the end of two thousand and nineteen, the global economy was probably going to be in a recession anyway. would it have been as drastic as would happen when you know the global leaders decided to shut down the world for a few years? Who knows. However, it wasn't as if the the global economy was on such a strong footing that it would have avoided a a recession. So. Yes, it accelerated a lot of things, and every 100 years or so, we have a global pandemic, so this isn't a new thing in terms of human civilization. And if you look back, especially, I read a book during COVID about the, the Black Death, which started in sort of the 14th century um, and some of the Italian city-state colonies who received ships of people who were sick, and then it sort of spread throughout Europe, and you know a third to 50% of the population died. And it sort of accelerated the trend of, people moving from the farm into the city, um, labor gaining purchasing power and negotiating power against the feudal capitalists uh, of the time. And so we saw a similar sort of thing. We have the analog businesses that couldn't survive when everybody was at home and participating in a fully digital economy. And obviously that created strains in the analog banking system. And the precursors of the current bank failures in 2023 was the policy response to COVID in two thousand and twenty. Um, we wouldn't have had the same issues if it wasn't for the response to a pandemic in essentially the United States and, and Western Europe. So it's all interrelated, but pandemics always accelerate changes that were gonna happen anyways, just much, you know, quicker.
2: It's very guns, germs, and steel. Like Jared Diamond's whole idea that, you know, global pandemics can be an you know, an impetus or, or a catalyst for change and, you know, big societal movements. Um, so I wanted to switch to talk a little bit more about your essays. Um, I have to admit, Dan and I are fans, um, you know, writers, recognizing writers. (laughs) Um, but you're certainly not the only person who puts these up at the top of your essays or anything you say about the market, but you know, you have to put out these big disclaimers to say, you know, this is not financial advice and don't trade or invest based on anything I say here. Um, so, you know, Dan and I know that we're writing for like a, a news consuming audience, but I'm, I want to know when you first started this and you now, as you're continuing to write these essays, who's the audience you have in mind, who do you want reading this and like, who are you doing this for? Or is this really just, you know, you're writing for yourself and you're putting it out there for whoever picks it up.
1: So, I mean, the first thing is I obviously trade my own money and I love financial markets. And so if you're not able to express an idea clearly and logically, then your investment thesis probably has holes in it, and those holes will result in losses. And writing these essays is kind of cathartic. So I have an idea, I have a position, can I explain my idea in a way that um, somebody can understand? And can they can walk through my thinking, okay, that makes sense or that doesn't make sense. Can I defend my idea against the internet, right? So if you publish dog shit and you open yourself up to public comment, People are gonna comment and you're gonna find out if you were, you know, off or on track um, from the general consensus, which is you know very good because again, I'm trading global macro. Global macro is essentially what does humanity think about these asset classes? And so if you're not able to put force a thesis, defend it, and it make any sense, then your portfolio doesn't make sense either. So I do that from a personal standpoint. And then from, you know, a educational standpoint, if we want crypto to be another financial system that people need to really understand what we're trying to replace or improve upon. And the unfortunate fact is a lot of people don't receive any sort of education about how money works, how the banking system works, how asset markets really function. And if you really want to get good analysis, it's extremely expensive. So I spend hundreds of thousands of dollars a year on Um, research. I don't like traditional news media. It's basically just propaganda for whoever the political class is in power and whichever respective jurisdiction you're in. It's all trash, in my opinion. You know, just read the headline. You'll probably get all you need to know about a particular issue. But that's, that's the news that most people consume. They want it free. They want it fast. They don't want to sit down and read something for half an hour. And so, you know, my part of, you know, talking my own book and hopefully helping educate people is here's a long form piece of content. I enjoy writing these things. I enjoy learning about these particular concepts. It's a challenge to myself to express them in as little jargon as possible, such that the average person can at least become interested in it. They doesn't necessarily have to agree with what I'm saying, but they have access to this, to this sort of research that's extremely expensive that they otherwise would just be reading the crap that's on their Facebook feed or, you know, TikTok or whatever. So that's sort of, you know, the overarching goal with my writing.
2: That gets a little bit to the the follow-up I was thinking of while you were uh, talking, but, you know, so many other people who create content or, you know, put information out there for people to consume about crypto and the industry are doing it with, like, Twitter spaces, Twitter threads, YouTube channels, you know, podcasts, you know, case in point, present, you know, here we are, um, so why why don't any of those forms appeal to you? Why is it that you want to do it in long form essays? Because these these are not short blog posts. I have to say.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that to make things pal- palatable on either you know short form social media content or even video takes away from the joy of in the creative aspect of you know prose uh, and writing. And I love to read you know very talented authors, and I try to take what I can from the greats and incorporate it into my into my writing. And I think that if you're not in sort of the written form, you lose a lot of that. And you can't really go into depth. Like a 30-minute long video or an hour-long video is very hard to consume versus, okay, I'm going to sit down and read something for half an hour. I just think that's just my own personal view. Like I find myself fidgeting when I'm, you know, watching long podcasts from speeding them up 1.5x. But if I want to sit down and read, you know, half an hour, hour long article or, you know, a long book, I'm able to do that. And I think that's a testament to written prose as an artist, People form. will definitely watch this whole video, Arthur.
0: Don't worry. No one's going <laughs> to skip through this. Um, no, I, I like where this is going and, and Stacy and I are writers. So I appreciate what you're saying. I mean, I don't know if everyone out there agrees. I feel like attention spans are, are pretty limited these days. Um, but it's a great segue to, to ask you. I, I know we wanted to bring up just crypto Twitter. I mean, you've become such a, a voice on there. You know, do you feel like a lot of nuance gets lost these days? And in some ways, um, I know you got into this in your great essay about Sam Bankman-Free, but, or you could use the SVB collapse as another example of like this social media mania that happens and it, you know, with equal speed, people are destroyed and brought down, but also built up. Like, you know, you sort of become this this Twitter oracle. I mean, Suju is another example pick anyone you want in the industry. Like what do you sort of make of all that? I know that you enjoy it. You know, you put out a meme where you're, you're chewing off Sam's head, but at the same time, like there's definite, there's definite drawbacks of the, the noise on
1: there. It's fun. I think it's enjoyable. It's a new means of communication. It obviously has its drawbacks. And I think I forgot it's either Lewis or Charles Gav It's a father and son research team called Gav call research. And one of their, their, um, thesis is that the Twitter, social media, TikTok culture has inspired um, cover-your-ass politics, which basically means that politicians, for the first time ever, are actually held to account in a real-time basis, and that leads them to very short-term thinking, to, okay, how do I appease my constituency today, not really going into any depth about any particular problem? And it leads to sort of these reactionary responses, and it's not It's not a democratic or an autocratic thing. Everyone has a social media um, audience in whichever jurisdiction that they're in and they're responsive to that. Even if their particular form of government has an election every four years or doesn't have any elections, right? This this, um, ethos and the spirit that's on Twitter and some of these other similar platforms are accelerating decisions which in a lot of cases are leading to poor decisions at at the end of the day. And so I think that people need to understand it's, you know, appreciate it for what it is. I think it's entertainment. It's fun to hang out with people and shit talk on Twitter. You know, people do post very interesting uh, content on Twitter, but again, I think that that is a starting point for a conversation that if you see something at a cool chart or somebody said something quite intelligent in was it, 140 or 240 characters, or whatever it is, that's an invitation for you to go and research more and read a book or read a longer form article to actually get the depth behind what you're reading. Otherwise, you're never gonna really understand what people are saying. Because again, if I'm gonna say something on Twitter, I need to use jargon and have to, you know, a lot of people aren't gonna understand what I'm saying. But if I if you wanna read my article, then I can explain something. And so I think if people confine themselves to just these, you know, short form social media content vehicles, they are not really going to upgrade their learning. They're just going to hear from people who can talk exactly where they are today and not, you know, upskill yourself. It's a really
2: interesting dynamic you're describing because both with the long form and you're kind of saying, you know, you want to challenge yourself to, put your thesis out there and just see what people think of it. And if they think it's shit, they're going to tell you. Um, but, you know, same thing with Twitter, really. in what you're saying is that, you know, it kind of all gets hashed out there. Like people are doing things thinking, you know, if people don't like this, I'm going to hear about it immediately. like <laughs> Within 30 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you think that can swing too far? I want to play devil's advocate with that because, you know, everyone called SVB like the bank run that like Twitter kind of kicked off. You know, and we've seen other instances where like, I mean, Dan and I were just chatting before this, like there's been execs that everyone, re- you know, thought and then it almost became kind of like an accepted fact that like people were dead and then <laughs> we found out that they're not, you know, it can go too far. And I just kind of want to push back on that a little
1: bit. Again, it's all about context. People need to take the, the content form and put it in context with their overall narrative of what they're trying to do right if you're on twitter to get in five if you're going to spend five minutes on twitter and think you're going to learn anything in depth then that's that's just not going to happen you know on the other side if you're a leader and you just respond to what people say on twitter you're not really a leader right you're not actually taking a longer form view and yes there could be some you know, constructive criticism around the edges but you've made your decision you've made your path you stick to it and Unless somebody presents something extremely compelling on a social media platform, you shouldn't be changing your mind, you know, every time you get you know a retweet or a like, right? And so I think that's just you just have to take the medium, and you know, incorporate it into your overall way of doing things.
0: I sometimes think for CEOs who are running exchanges, there's like nothing good can come of being too vocal on Twitter. I mean, I love pointing out the Alex Mashinsky tweet where he retweeted. I think it was Selkis, right, Stacy of, of Masari, who had questioned Celsius, or maybe it was Mike Dudas, but one of those two. And he retweeted and was like, Shame on you. You know, we are in great shape with terrific health. And how dare you suggest? And it was like, Two days later, and it's like <laughs> Celsius, you know, the Spongebob thing. Man, like, just why tweet that?
1: Like, <laughs> yeah.
2: Um, I, d- I did want to also kind of spin that to ask what you think of the way that you've been portrayed, I guess, both in mainstream media and Twitter. Do you think either form of media has been any kinder to you? Do you think there's a lot of truth in the way that people, you know, who've never met you and may never meet you perceive you?
1: I honestly don't care. Um, I, it's, it, you get a reaction. Social media is about getting a reaction. and We know that that's how the human dopamine function works in the brain either you like, you love somebody, you hate somebody. And if you're trying to, you know, glean self-worth from either one of those two reactions, you're probably going to be led astray in terms of your behavior, because the people who love you are going to love you, regardless of what you say, the people who hate you are going to hate you, regardless of what you say. And they, they, they get their self-worth by exposing those feelings on, on this, this platform that gives them that dopamine hit of, did I get some reaction either out of the person who sponsor the original content or somebody else inside the inside the Twitter sphere. So I honestly don't really care. Um, I think it's funny, the people who don't like me. It's funny, the people who like me, I, you know, you just take it in stride. And if you're, if you're going to be a personality on one of these platforms, you can't really, you know, get too up or down on yourself, um, depending on what people say.
0: I, I like that answer. You know, something that struck me that I wanted to ask you about, which was already back in 2021, but the Economist ran something. It was like you know the four biggest figures in crypto or the four horsemen of crypto, and it had a, a cartoon in a car of you, Brian Armstrong, uh, CZ, and Sam Bankman-Fried. And it's like, man, two years later, it's it's pretty interesting to look at you know where things stand now. You know, two of the people in that car um, not, not doing so great this this week or this month. I mean, do you think about like who your peers are? I guess when you look at, is it the other people who are most, I guess what's interesting about those four, you know, and people could question having those four be like the four in the illustration, but it was all, you know, people associated with a major centralized exchange. right? Um, but do you think about like who your counterparts are or the company you keep in terms of like online? I guess more
1: I wanna read interesting content. I wanna read people, regardless of their view, who are very thoughtful about it, who've spent the time to actually research something, who cite other sources, who post interesting charts. Like, I want my content to be read and cited by others. I don't necessarily care what somebody thinks about how I run my exchange. I get a very easy report card of that. It's my trading volume, right? If you trade with us, then our, our product makes sense. If you don't then you don't like what the economist says or any other publication is irrelevant because none of that points to how much money and how much trading volume goes through Bitmax. so it's kind of like irrelevant
2: and then i i want to switch to talk about one of your essays in particular and this is white boy the one that you published after everything fell apart at ftx um and i remember reading it and thinking yeah uh, kind of shaking my head through it because I said something really similar to what you said in many, many more words and more eloquently than I did. But I said on this podcast, talking to Dan and another one of our colleagues, Kate, part of the reason that I thought Sam Bankman Freed was so successful and did kind of, you know, have so many politicians, investors and just, you know, regular Joe Schmo crypto traders, you know, fawning over him was because he was the right kind of techie white boy with Ivy League parents. And I I just wondered if you've given much thought to if we're ever going to get to the point where we can spot people who fit that archetype and call it out before it happens, like before billions of dollars have been lost. Because damn, wouldn't that have been good?
1: (laughs) Yeah, but people did call it out. It's not as if there were not detractors of SBF, or there wasn't you know, warning signs. It's just that... Everybody stood to make a lot of money if he was successful, Irregardless of whether you agree with his pers- perspective or not. If you were a stratified person, you wanted to fo- hold into crypto and you're wanted—you a know, your type of person who was in charge of the leading exchange. If you were a crypto person, you thought that Sam had the ear of the regulators globally and he could help push the agenda for crypto. Right. So everybody was invested in him being successful and were willing to you know, not look too much deeper beneath the surface. I'm sure everybody kind of knew that he was running some sort of like public image game right he was just saying all what are supposedly the right things about the global issues that he was supposed to care about hanging out with the right sort of former politicians at his conferences he was giving it all to charity and all these sorts of things right there wasn't any it's not like you could say oh sam's a bad guy because he wants to give all his money away to charity like imagine saying imagine that's the headline that you went out on twitter with you're not going to say that right you could say okay cool this is the game he's running I hope he's not a complete scumbag. He was, but at the end of the day, everybody went along with it because everyone had an invested interest in him being successful.
2: I mean, he, for a while, was, and I think we've even done it at some point, he was kind of commonly referred to as just the nicest guy in crypto. In hindsight, do you think that was the red flag, just that like, he seemed to just find a way to ingratiate himself with literally anybody he was talking to or dealing with?
1: No, the red flag was just asking questions, right? Like <clears throat> if you actually ask people who know about trading, you could, you would know, okay, yes, there was latency arbitrage happening on the exchange. Market makers did not want to trade on FTX because they knew they were getting front run. Like this stuff was common knowledge. Everybody knew that this exchange was a little bit shady, but it didn't matter, right? Because they were still around and this is crypto, right? You know, glass houses, throwing stones, all that kind of stuff, right? So. Again, if you actually spent the time to talk to people who actually knew anything about trading, everyone had their spidey senses. something might not have been right. Did we think that he was going to blow $8 billion to send money to his hedge fund? No, right? It's just the egregiousness of what he was doing. There's lots of exchanges in crypto in the past that have you know, done shady stuff uh, and disadvantaged their customers. Did they steal $8 billion? No. And so I guess it's all about the magnitude how about the political aspect i mean you alluded to it but the to
0: me one of the biggest ironies of this whole story was that he was you know painted as mr washington and he was the one who was going to advocate on behalf of the industry and actually get lawmakers and politicians you know not only educate them on crypto but you know get them to understand that hey don't crimp innovation you know crypto actually can do good and you should pass a new law and now it's like as a reaction to what he allegedly did they are now over-adjusting, and it seems like he's done as much good as people claimed he was doing or was going to do. He's now done that
1: much and more in damage to the to the whole industry. Yeah, I think the, that's not really the irony. The irony is that he wasn't really it wasn't he wasn't a U.S. business. The, the majority of the people who got hurt that's were good. not in the United States, even though he spent all his time lobbying politicians in, in Washington, right? And so, I think that's really the, the, the disconnect that people need to understand is. There's, all, there's the whole, you know, Pax Americana race class stuff, right? But the real thing was, hey, this guy was able to get, you know, ingratiated with regimes across the world as, okay, if Bill Clinton and Tony Blair are willing to be on stage with this guy, then maybe I'll give him a license um, in, in some jurisdiction, right? But then guess what? The people who really got harmed by this are not people in America. It's people all around the world who are large depositors of, of this, FTX. And what's interesting is a lot of the places where he was able to gain favor with, you know, regulators are places where traditionally they don't like foreigners. And they, you know, they don't let the white boy come in there and get a license to do X Y Z. It's the local person who's able to, you know, get a license to do a, a particular type of business. So that's what's even more interesting about the whole, you know socioeconomic saga that is FTX and, and SPF and what he was able to accomplish outside of America and traditional places where he just wouldn't have been, get, been able to get a seat at the table.
2: Do you think, you know, there's this really overused and at this point kind of meme phrase <laughs> that gets thrown around in crypto, like, you know, Bitcoin fixes this, crypto fixes this, you know, all, all these different things. Does Does crypto wind up fixing this at all? This idea that like, Yeah, there was something kind of hinky about the exchange. People who were hardcore traders were like, I don't really want to be on FTX. And, you know, it pinged their spidey senses. But, you know, otherwise, people were just giving him a pass, like you pointed out. So how does crypto fix this at all? Or, Or can it? Can anything fix this? Like,
1: It's just human behavior. Crypto doesn't fix any of this. It's just that crypto exists, still exists, even after this blatant amount of, like, malfeasance, right? It's not as if... A central bank came in and bailed out every exchange um, and all the other people who you know, got knocked out because they you know, had exposure to FTX. That's not what happened. The, the great part about crypto and the unfortunate part for anyone who's on the you know, losing side of this is that the market cleared very quickly. A person who ran a very highly leveraged business model to the price of Bitcoin and other shit coins. Was cleaned out because the market was a free trading market. It wasn't protected. He wasn't. Oh shit! Sam Free is going bankrupt. Guess what? You know, close the exchange, print the money. You know, banks are shut for the weekend. We got to prop up this you know significant industry player and make sure. Sh- and you know, everyone else get in the room. Someone's bailing this guy out, right? That's how the tr- system we're trying to replace operates. That's what happened with Credit Suisse and UBS. Sam was allowed to fail, and unfortunately that. Hurt a lot of people, but that was the right response to to what happened because this it cleansed the system, and now we're one hundred percent up from where we were when that when that failure happened. Right in the span of less than six months, so we take the pain, we move forward, and we make adjustments. That's that's what crypto is about.
2: We'll be right back after this.
0: Since we're talking about the kind of legal and regulatory treatment right now in, in cryptos rep, and I know you don't want to get too into you know your own legal past, but I guess big picture, Arthur, when you look at what's happening in terms of regulation, the US versus other countries, what do you see happening and playing out? Because uh, you know we are right now seeing a lot of countries basically say, well, we just, uh, companies, I should say, we just won't operate in the US because it, it's too unclear to us how to avoid the issues here.
1: I'll I, I take it even a, a level higher than the US because this isn't just a US thing. If you think about the global fiat system, we've piled on, you know, what is it like, two or 300% of global GDP in terms of debt over the last 50 years, right? How do you repay debt? You outright default or you inflate and default. And so, it, inflate and default is the easier option because it's not as blatant and you know, the politicians can decide the speed and the contours of who essentially pays for the, you know, the malinvestments that happen. And so if you think about it, the speed and the pace of the assignment of the losses for this debt that is not productive can only happen at a slow and gradual pace. If those who have capital in the system are not allowed to leave. And so if you think about it in that perspective, What is crypto and gold and any other thing that isn't a liability on, you know, a traditional financial services company's balance sheet? That's the way to get out. That's the way that your capital isn't subject to inflation. And you don't want to be there. We've seen what happens. You know, Weimar, Germany, Zimbabwe, United States from 1941 to 1952 when, you know, yield curve control was in place. Japan and, you know, 1989 until the present, right? These are all places where financial repression was enacted because there was too much debt. And instead of having a quick and dirty financial crisis like we had in 1930s in the United States, we decided to extend and pretend and we're going to inflate it away and dunk, dink people, but it's going to be more pleasant, right? And so if you don't want to be part of that cohort that's getting your capital eviscerated over the you know, over the next coming decades, then you're buying crypto, you're buying gold, you're you're buying hard assets, right? You're buying businesses with no debt, right? So and this is the way that you get out of that situation. And so if you think about it, I'm someone who has to allocate these losses. I want the denominator to be as large as possible. I can't have everyone going to this crypto thing and getting out of the way of this inflation that I have to put on the backs of the entire world to pay for all this bad debt that we've you know, that we've accumulated over the last 50 years. And so that's put that in context when you think about XYZ regulator or g- country saying, oh, crypto is bad. It's evil. It's not ESG. It's not this. It's a scam. Blah, 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 blah. Right. You can repeat the mantras or, hey, you know, we don't want you to have crypto in your own private wallet. Keep it on the exchange. Don't withdraw it. Or we want to have ETFs and we're going to keep them in the hands of the traditional players who are just going to custody that crypto. And if we need to, you know, inflate, Tax them, we'll just do it, uh, there goes your crypto, right? So this is what's happening around the world. It's not just the United States thing. And so people need to understand the, the bigger game that's being played and, and not to personify with, it's a, you know, a US thing or a China thing or a Europe thing or whatever, right? That just gets you mired down into um, the politics, which is not really the game. Everybody has the same problem. I don't care if you're capitalist or you're communist, everybody put on a lot of debt, We've passed the point where that debt has become useful and therefore everyone is going to take an L unless they get some crypto or some gold, you know, some hard asset that's outside of the traditional banking system.
2: There's a a few different things that I think are really interesting that I want to kind of come back to. So like we've heard people kind of bemoan like how quickly people can spin up a new project in crypto and then it, you know, gets really big and then it fails quickly It sounds like you're saying that that's a feature, not a bug. Like it is in the long run, probably we're seeing fewer people actually be impacted by some of these huge blow ups because they get so big and then they collapse so quickly. So at least, you know, the market has kind of cleansed itself of like these projects that ultimately shouldn't have been in the first place. Do do I have that right?
1: Yeah. Similar to like every single new piece of technology has a similar sort of, you know, life cycle. Imagine, think about railroads back in the mid 19th century. How many different railroad companies were there? There were hundreds, maybe thousands of these companies, all building the same lines going everywhere. You know, complete clusterfuck. You know, there was charlatan promoters promoting railroad stocks, pump and dumps. If you want to take a look at financial crisis caused by new technology, you know, crisis banking crisis of 1873 in the United States, 1906. Um, Like these are all predicated on new forms of technology. People rushed into them. know there was all these different companies created out of thin air very very quickly a lot of them were dubious quality they all came cream crashing back down the unfortunate part about the traditional setup of the world economy today is that irrespective of the ism economic ism that is practiced in your particular jurisdiction nobody wants to assign any losses to anyone and so we're unwilling to allow companies to fail especially if you know if they've donated to my political party, or they've been very supportive of my rise to power, and so we're not letting the system cleanse itself. You know, would there have been such an impetus to create Bitcoin if we didn't have the 2008 global financial crisis? You know, probably not, right? So mm-hmm. everything's a reaction to this fact. This fact that as a globe, we've decided we don't want to have any more pain. Everything is is up only, and the problem with that is you don't get any change, and everything that we have here today, you know, these video cameras, this internet, it's all due to change. And that change was disruptive. And every single time there's going to be failures.
2: So what do you think about some of the really big traditional financial institutions getting involved in crypto? Like you mentioned some of the the ETFs before, and there is this big ongoing fight, like Grayscale really wants to get a spot Bitcoin ETF approved. They want to convert um, GBTC. And, you know, that's been an ongoing fight. And there are some people in crypto who think, okay, we've got to play nice. We've got to like make room for them. We've got to let the big traditional players come in and this is how we get to legitimacy. This is how we you know, bring in the next billion people. Um, it sounds like you're maybe not as welcoming as that. So I, I, I want to ask about that.
1: So the great thing about crypto is that the way that the technology was funded was at a grassroots level rather than like a, a top-down level, right? It's not as if the richest people in the world were the ones who owned the first Bitcoin or mine the first Bitcoin which just random people, right? And so we have this ecosystem. Yes, there is a highly concentration of whales who have, you know, what, 10,000 or more Bitcoin or whatever. But at the end of the day, it's just individual people saw the premise, saw there was value there, invested their time and money and power, and they own, own, own crypto, as opposed to I'm politically connected. Therefore, I'm allowed the seat at the table to invest in this new technology. And so I think that's extremely powerful because if this is the people's money, that is only valuable because we have a network of computers of the people to validate transactions, then the people should own it. And that doesn't mean that you know a large traffic corporation should be barred from buying Bitcoin. Absolutely not. If you wanna go market buy a billion dollars of Bitcoin, please do, like, <laughs> I want that shit to go up, right? But do we need to like compromise on the principles and ethos of the ecosystem to let in this player who wasn't, who? Didn't believe in this in the first place? No, we don't need to. If they want to buy it, they can buy it. If they want to launch an ETF, launch an ETF. If you want to launch a custodial solution in your own financial institution, launch it, right? It's, it, it, that's the whole point. Anyone can participate. We shouldn't be have this ease of banning people. But at the same token, we shouldn't say that we need to compromise on what we're trying to achieve, which is a new form of networking with the people rather than a trusted centralized counterparty and create value that way. That is what I have a problem with.
0: Of course, there are people who've been in crypto since the beginning who think the very idea of big banks getting in in any way, shape, or form, which is happening, is kind of silly. Like defeats the whole purpose of, you know, what we're doing here. It, it, that clash has always been interesting to me between the the Dgens and the OG types. You know, many of them libertarians, not all. But now the people who, in the last three years, and again, that's why I brought up the pandemic. I feel like that was this. You know, all of a sudden the the funnel uh, got really fat of like people rushing in. Uh, I mean, last episode, we just had Anthony Scaramucci on, you know, he's definitely from that world of um, already rich Wall Street investors who got into crypto purely as an investment, you know, and he's not on Uniswap, you know, swapping coins, and he's not um, collecting NFTs or sending Bitcoin to a relative in another country and praising it for that purpose. It's like, it's an investment case. Do do you see that that sort of tension between... um, between those camps increasing or it doesn't matter. It can be
1: everyone, everyone into the tent. Tension is great because it is, again, everyone's money, right? So everyone should have a voice. If Scaramucci wants a particular, you know, you know, Bitcoin improvement protocol champion, he should do it, right? That's the whole point. Everyone should be able to participate to the extent that they'd like to. Uh, and so I think to say that this certain type of person should not be allowed in Bitcoin is antithetical to what we're trying to do here.
2: The other point I wanted to kind of jump to is, you know, we we've we've got incumbent centralized players in uh, crypto, um, and you know, kind of to Dan's point, there are some people who think there shouldn't be centralized players that they shouldn't have too, you know, kind of like an outsized influence or or say in how things continue to develop. So, who do you see as the top centralized exchanges or players right now, and just how do you feel about? You know them getting stronger or winding up having like an outsized say in some of the things that happen in crypto. Well,
1: I think the the issue isn't really like them having an outside say. It's the average person doesn't actually care about decentralization or centralization. They want a good product, so they want you know an easy product to use and this and that and the yeah, other. They don't really care if using a Sparrow wallet versus using you know, BitGo is a better solution or trading on BitMEX or trading on another decentralized exchange is it's a better way to go from a decentralization point of view. They don't care about that, right? You know, good price, good product, you know, good user experience. That's all they. that's all the majority of people care about and will care about it in the future. And so, you know, the centralized exchanges and the centralized players play an important role in that, in that they offer people, you know, the crypto light solution. You know, if you want to participate, you don't really want to go full into exactly what this is all about yes you can hold your crypto on the centralized player or you can use one of these services if you want to actually become your own financial institution and take control of the, you know the destiny of your finances that's there for you to do too that's a, at this point it's harder to use hopefully there's more people working on solutions that make that easier to use so that competition is a little bit more fair but at the end of the day i think that's the you know the average person doesn't care about any Centralization or centralization. However, they do care that they, you know, over the weekend, they thought their bank deposit wasn't going to be made full if they were, you know, SVB or signature depositor. And they're like, okay, well, what is this? Is there something to this Bitcoin thing that people are talking about? That's, and, and then we said, okay, well, yeah, you can use a centralized wallet. You can use a decentralized wallet. You can buy it this way or that way. And that sparks the conversation. I'm glad you said that about
0: you know, how difficult it is to use it versus like crypto light. I wanted to ask you about that. You know, it seems to me that um, for all the raving that that crypto true believers do about DeFi, it's still, you know, way too hard to use for a regular person, even people who are not completely tech clueless, you know, like you're basically saying you got to get your MetaMask wallet and then do these four steps. And it's just too much for most people. I mean, after FTX collapsed, all the DeFi um, fanatics were saying, see, see, this is why you don't put your money on a centralized exchange. And it was like okay but centralized exchanges aren't going away as a thing i mean it, as you said you nailed it it's like for the average person if they've heard a little bit about bitcoin and they want to get into it coinbase is good enough like they'll do it for me you know they don't they don't care when you say well you really shouldn't keep your crypto on the exchange um do you see this changing in the next few years with the ux of you know real defi tools getting much better because it seems to me it's going to be a long road to get the average person to have a, a crypto wallet that they manage
1: yeah i mean it might we might never even get there to be honest right and it, that might still be okay right because then they not everyone is at the same place in their desire to run their own finances most people don't want anything to do with running their finances they want to you know have meaningful work save some money be able to provide for their family the fact that they now have to speculate in crypto and gold and property and this and that and stocks and bonds and blah 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 like what the fuck man why, why can't i just like hold something, and I don't have to worry about this shit, right? Now, if we can make it that easier where someone gets to hold it and not worry about this shit, then they'll use whatever solution is out there, whether it's centralized or decentralized. Because the problem with this inflation that is rampant in the world is that we create speculators out of everyone. Because everyone is worried about, I I have a job, I know I'm not going to get a raise to meet the cost of living, therefore, with whatever savings I have, I need to be a degen on the stock market and NFTs and Dogecoin and whatever, right? It doesn't really matter what it is. And I, people don't want to do that. That's like most people don't want anything to do with, with finance. Um, unfortunately. How
2: far out do you think we are from, you know, having a really viable crypto light product or do you think we're there already?
1: I, I have no idea. It's, it's again, it's really, I think you need demand, right? So, Depending on how this banking crisis, you know, unfolds, I have my my thesis. But at the end of the day, like, how painful is this inflation that people are going to have to go through? How much is it really going to change their, you know, how they structure their lives? And that will determine how fast we get a, you know, very very well used decentralized crypto product or not. Because at the end of the day, if it's just people like me and us who want to use some decentralized product, that's great thank you very much for you know developing something you know in an open source manner but again it's not going to pay the bills
2: it has long seemed like at least in terms of centralized exchanges that this is Binance's to lose uh, i'm curious to see and i know we're going back to kind of something we we tried to ask you about before but like who's the top exchange right now like for you I mean, obviously- and this is not just based off volume
1: yeah well, it is. Everything is based on volume, off okay. volume. I think that's the only that's the only objective metric that you can go on. In, in, so then can
2: Binance. it only be Binance at the top right now?
1: Well, it could be anyone. There's been a lot of exchanges that have worn the crown for a while, and it's a very heavy crown. CZ's wearing it right now. We'll see how long he keeps it on his head. And yeah, it's Binance's race to lose because they have, what is that, I don't know, 75-80% market share uh, in terms of, of most products. And so it depends um, what the customers want, what You know, he wants to develop for his exchange. Um, And so obviously everyone's gunning for him. Everyone wants to do an improvement, create new white space in the exchange space to offer something new for clients. And we'll see what happens.
0: Uh, Let's talk a little bit about NFTs, Arthur. You know, we've we've mostly been doing crypto um, as a hard asset, you know, a financial asset. Talk to us a little bit about the culture. You know, I, I was looking up your Twitter and I see you with your um, your ordinals, you know, your taproot wizards NFT. You're, yes. you're getting into it. So it is funny to me. I mean, as you can tell, I love framing things in terms of like the camps within crypto. Um, but there's, you know, for the longest time, it was like, well, NFTs are an ETH thing and Bitcoiners don't touch that. But that is changing.
1: Yeah, I think in my view, NFTs is a data construct and it's a data construct that allows us to trade human culture. And everything we do other than, you know, eat, sleep, eating and sleeping is culture, right? It's sports. It's going to a nice restaurant. It's looking at art. Um, It's listening to music. So NFTs is, how do I make this scarce? How do I put this, make this tradable? How do I um, give money back to the creators? And so this is probably, I think, one of the biggest movements or applications of um, this cryptographic and money, technology that we're building—it's unlocking the potential of the long tail of human culture and letting everybody participate. Everybody trade it, you know, getting away from these centralized platforms, these big Web two platforms that sort of gate content and tell you how you need to, how you need to comport yourself on the internet. What we like and what we don't like, right? Why? Why are they? Why do they tell? Um, tell me what's a valid tweet, what's not a valid tweet, right? Why is Elon's purview to say that? So that is why I think NFTs is gonna be a massive movement. The first expression of this is always the crudest form, right? So like remember, obviously I wasn't alive, but people bemoan the fact that, you know, actors and actresses would start to talk in movies or that there was color, right? This was considered, you know, vulgar and just not to be done. Um, and yet today we have people who would rather go to Gagosian art exhibit and say, artists are meant to be on the wall this person didn't go to pace. Why, you know, who who's, who's collecting these JPEG, whatever the fuck you call them, right? And they just snub their nose that this isn't art, this is just, this is merchandise, right? And so that to me tells me this is exactly where I wanna be because that is art that's pushing the culture forward of what we consider proper expression of humanity. And this is the digital format in which we can trade it and value it. And that's why I think the NFTs and whatever comes out of it is going to be huge. Obviously, we had Ethereum was the first manifestation of this. Now you have ordinal theory, which you know I find a lot of value in because it's actually unique. It's not just a pointer to some centralized database, um, maybe IPFS or file query or whatever. Right. And so every camp is gonna have their take on it. And that's what's super interesting, is because it's everyone's culture to experience on the internet.
2: Again, with NFTs, like we've seen. So many big brands come in and kind of try to make a run at this thing. I, I see Dan. It, this is on the podcast, so I'm just gonna say it loud. I see Dan smiling because I know we've both seen lots of big,
0: yeah, Pe- Pepsi uh, microphones,
2: yeah, or like, and I hate to start naming names, but like the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade collection. I I wound up writing that one, and they had all the NFTs of like the the balloons. <laughs> and like it's it's been really interesting seeing the community. Um, be able to identify a collection that's coming from someone who really doesn't care about the significance of it. They're just trying to jump in and like get their feet wet. So I am curious to know, like, when was the turning point for you when you you thought, okay, yeah, NFT, like, there's real value here.
1: Yeah, trading volumes, like, you know, obviously trading volumes exploded on OpenSea back in was in August in twenty twenty one, I think it was. Um, And then you just saw the different types of people who, you know, went to a crypto conference you would never see before, right? Would you ever expect X, Y, Z celebrity or brand would figure out how to deal with Ethereum, um, get their get their customers to use a MetaMask or some other sort of wallet to buy this piece this item, right? Before crypto was this thing, we don't touch it, we don't know how to deal with it. Our auditors hate it, our banks hate it. But now it's fuck. I can sell this digital content like. No friction. I don't have to go through my traditional distributors. I used to have to, like, communicate with my followers on some platform and tell them to buy or sell this thing. I'm in. Right. And of course, they're in. If the young generation says this is how I want to be, this is how I want to consume culture, then the brands have to be there. Irrespective. And it's going to be very clunky. It's going to be very ugly. It's going to be very, you know, just bad at first before they understand, Okay, this is what this is the market I'm trying to target. This is how they want to consume this culture. And, you know, I need to put this type of effort into it. No one knows. say, like, okay. NFT, slap it on, you know, OpenSea and i have doing an NFT project. And then somebody got a promotion, right? That's probably mm-hmm. what happened at a lot of these companies. <laughs> and, you know, as, as they start to get shit from people like us, like that was complete dog shit. They're going to start to refine that view. And people are going to say, well, no, you, know, you got to really create a community. You should have had a discord channel. And, you know, these type of people like this particular chain and blah, blah, blah. Right. And so you get nuance. But obviously, the first stuff is going to be trash. It's just going to be okay, you know. If CryptoPunks sold for, if there's an Alien Punk that sold for three million dollars, fuck. And then all it is is just a JPEG. Let me create one too. I, you know, I should be able to make one for a hundred thousand dollars, right? And that's that's not how art's made.
0: Yeah, I know you like your rare Pepes, and that's Absolutely. like a great example of something that that actually has history. Once you read about it and you understand where it came from, it's pretty cool. Um man this has been so much fun. Uh we don't want to keep you too too long but as as we start to wrap up, you know, to circle back to the beginning when we were talking about writing. Um and just I just so appreciate what you're saying about, you know, wanting to actually read good stuff. What are you reading lately? You mentioned the the book about um, you know, a plague long ago. What are some of the books you've you've been getting into?
1: Uh I recently spent the long weekend in Penang, in Malaysia cuz I love to eat street food. Um, like and so reading history of Malaysia, I don't really know much about the place, um, you know, very interesting. Uh, I like to learn about the places where I live and spend a lot of time. And I think it gives you a lot of context of why people feel the way they do even today, right? You know, a few hundred years ago is not, obviously it's a long time, but it's not that long of a time ago. We still harbor the grudges and, you know, feel the injustices of many hundreds and many thousands of years ago. So if you go to a place, you don't really understand the history, then you're not really going to understand why people feel the way they do. And so, yeah, that's one interesting book that I'm reading right now. I'm reading another book about World War War II, uh, very detailed. uh, It's shocking how destructive war is. And I think everyone should read the book. You know, you don't have, if you want to read it from a perspective of your particular jurisdiction, go ahead. It's not going to be pretty. I don't care if you're on the you know, whichever side you're on, war is a destructive and terrible thing, and I think people need to read about how it was like, you know, 80 years ago to make sure that they don't, you know, enable politicians to push for solutions that um, militarily escalate things. And So, this is something. No fiction. Do. Not recently. I haven't. I'm, I'm always on the lookout for good sci-fi. Um, so, you know, if you have any recommendations, uh, happy to hear them. But yeah, nothing. Nothing's tickled my fancy right as of yet, recently
2: see now i'm thinking about the the good sci-fi i've read recently have you tried the broken earth trilogy
1: i've heard about this i need to i need to have ever read that
2: it's really really good uh, it's they're very long the, <laughs> books but i absolutely recommend it it's, i think they're trying to make it into a series uh, <laughs> but yeah um it, yeah I, I was also interested that you didn't mention any uh fiction but yeah, there's some really good stuff out there. Oh, also the, I think it's Black Red Leopard, Black.
0: Oh, yeah. Marlon um, James.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think they're also doing a show with that. Those are my okay. two recommendations.
0: <laughs> awesome. Thank you.
2: Um, The other thing I was going to ask, and you, you mentioned this really early on when we started recording, um, was that you don't just want to read like really quick kind of like, you know, fast food kind of media content you want to read stuff that's been really deeply researched where do you wind up doing your research like who else is you know putting good stuff out there that you read when you want to kind of learn about markets and kind of build the thesis that you're going to put out there on your blog
1: yes i'm obviously i'm a big acolyte of uh felix zuloff i read his his work um danielle Di martino booth at quill intelligence he publishes great stuff jim bianco uh He's very entertaining to listen to and his stuff is very good. I'm a subscriber of Ned Davis Research, um, very OGs in the, the global macro space. And then, you know, me and my friends trade publications around, right? We talk about this stuff. It's something that really interests us. And so, you know, a particular strategy so the bank puts out something interesting then we'll forward it around and we'll discuss it. So it's something that I I like doing and it's fun and it's, you know, very intellectual and obviously you want to be right and make money which makes it you get a yardstick for your ideas, which is fun and so, yeah.
0: Awesome, good stuff. Maybe we should also just put out this whole episode as a uh, Medium post (laughs) to fit your thesis about reading it in text. (laughs) Uh, Great stuff. Arthur, thanks so much for coming on. That's our show today. Thanks for listening. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to GM wherever you podcast. And if you head to our website, decrypt.co, you can find the full videos of every interview with every guest. Finally, we have a telegram room for our loyal GM listeners. The address is t.me slash gmpodcast. If you pop in there, you can get direct access to the co-hosts. You can suggest future guests, submit comments, and ask questions. It's t.me slash gmpodcast. GM.